Welcome to Keep Calm and Cook On. I'm your host, Julia Tertian. Each episode of Keep Calm and Cook On features a meaningful interview and answers to listeners' questions about cooking. Thank you to Great Jones for making this episode possible. Great Jones makes beautiful, thoughtfully designed cookware. To find out more about Great Jones, head over to greatjonesgoods.com. For $25 off of any purchase on greatjonesgoods.com, use the code PODCAST. That's P-O-T-C-A-S-T. Welcome to the second season of Keep Calm and Cook On. I'm so excited to kick off this season with Cecile Richards. Cecile was the president of Planned Parenthood for more than a decade. Vogue magazine has called her a heroine of the resistance. Cecile's late mother, the incredible Ann Richards, was the governor of Texas, and Cecile clearly follows in her mother's meaningful footsteps, doing work fighting for social justice and for women's rights. As Cecile wrote about in her book, Make Trouble, she has been an activist ever since she was taken to the principal's office in the seventh grade for protesting the Vietnam War. As a young woman, Cecile worked as a labor organizer and went on to do more advocacy work in various progressive leadership roles. One thing that has always moved me about Cecile's work is how she brings other women along with her. I was so happy that Lauren Peterson, the co-author of Make Trouble, joined us for this episode. Before working with Cecile on her book, Lauren wrote speeches for both Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and President Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. Both Lauren and Cecile care so much about telling stories that help us all move forward, and it was a joy to sit down with them and hear a few of theirs. The timing was awesome since the paperback of Make Trouble with a new afterword just hit shelves this week. I hope you enjoy listening to Lauren and Cecile as much as I loved talking to them. Will you guys introduce yourselves? You can choose who goes first. Sure. Uh, I'm Cecile Richards. And Hi. oh, <laughs> no, that's I, great. Friend of Julia, and uh, <laughs> yes, and just general troublemaker. Awesome. What about you? I'm Lauren Peterson, and I'm a writer and the co author on Cecile's book, Make Trouble. Awesome. Thank you for joining me. That yes. means a lot. I'm super excited. Um, I'd love to hear about when you two first met, how you came into each other's lives. Whoever wants to tell. Oh, that's so funny. I well, I, I guess I could give my version, and Lauren will. Yeah, let's hers, compare stories. I was I was looking for a speechwriter. I was at Planned Parenthood, and it's a very personal relationship, speechwriting, right? It's like sort of you have to be able to get into each other's brain. And I had all these very, I would say, established professional women who were, you know, more my generation. And uh, with deep experience. And then there was Lauren, who was this sort of young upstart. And she wrote this speech that I ended up giving at a, a, it was a meeting of young women. And it was just, it was hilarious. It was, you know, fun. It was energetic. And I just thought, how does this, how does she get all this? And hired her. And we we traveled around the country and um, made speeches and wrote speeches and re-edited each other's words, and I, I just, it's like, I can't believe she came into my life. Does that Meanwhile, feel accurate? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. I mean, the funny part, the, the part Cecile didn't say is that I think in the end, I know it was, I think it, it was down to me for the job and some other candidate who had much, much more experience, and I don't know what speech the other candidate wrote as sort of her, you know, trial that she had to do. I wrote 
this was my first job after working on the Obama campaign digital team in, in 2012. My speech was to a room of 20-something women who were being honored for working in digital media and tech. So it was literally a speech to a room full of my friends. So I really, it was an easy assignment for, for me to write. Um, some would say cheating. But really, for me, it was Cecile, I worked on the Obama campaign in 2012, and women's issues pretty quickly became kind of my beat. And I had volunteered at Planned Parenthood in high school, and that was sort of how I became involved in politics in the first place. And so I had to go to every women's event you could possibly find anywhere across the country. And this was not traveling with the motorcade, living large. This was, we're trailing them in a minivan that we just rented at the airport counter. And I saw Cecile speak at the Democratic National Conference Women's Convention. And she was just so funny. And it was sort of an off-the-cuff speech. She was introducing, I think, Michelle Obama, which is a really not an enviable speech to have to give because everyone just wants to see Michelle Obama. But Cecile was hilarious and lively and just sort of cut through the noise. And it wasn't like anyone I had heard that whole week at the convention. And so when people started asking me what I wanted to do after the Obama campaign, I said, well, I would love to write for someone like Cecile Richards. And then it just turned out that she was actually hiring a speechwriter. That was an actual job that was available. And I led an aggressive PR campaign to get every person I knew or had ever met who had any connection whatsoever with Planned Parenthood to send an email on my behalf and say, you know, you really should talk to Lauren Peterson. She doesn't have that much experience, but she's very enthusiastic about this job. So it was really just the stars aligned, I felt like, for me. She wore me down. I did. (laughs) Yeah, I just gave in. Yeah. How long ago? That was was five years ago, a little more than five years ago. That's right. Wow. And I think one of the, actually one of the people I said, you know, I'm applying for this job and I really want it was at this award ceremony, Cecile presented an award to someone who accepted the award and then leaned in and whispered in her ear, you should hire Lauren Peterson. That's amazing. You had a whole with shameless. campaign. Oh yeah. Shameless. Absolutely shameless. Yeah. Worth yeah. it. That's really cool. It's so interesting because I was thinking about and anticipating talking to you. I mean, we do very different work, but I, like you, Lauren, have had a lot of experience kind of collaborating with people, writing for them, and I've, you know, worked on other people's cookbooks and stuff, and I really understand, I feel like the dynamics of what your relationship are, even though I haven't participated in your actual relationship or done speech writing, but I know how special it is when you find someone, when it works, when it clicks, Um, so I just, I think you guys, from the outside, it seems like you really have something special, and I appreciate getting to reflect on it a little bit more. I, I think one thing that's that matters, which is not, which is in addition to just sort of having maybe the same sort of sense of humor and um, I don't know style, is we care about the same thing, and that of course is like the, the great thing about any relationship is I think the same things that interest, alarm excite Lauren are the same things that I, I care about too, whether it's on women's health or the fact that women um, still only make 80 cents on the dollar, all these things. So I think we were each able to discover new and interesting ways of thinking about women's um, situation. And that has, that's just something that um, you really have to have in order to do this work together. Yeah, yeah to have the same set of yeah. values and beliefs, I'm sure. Helps. <laughs> it does. Yeah. And, well, it's hard to say what came first, too, because I think we do care fundamentally about the same things, which is, you know, women's economic security and 
rights and people being able to vote and LGBTQ rights and racial justice and you name it. But it's also that Cecile, when I started writing speeches with her, I had very little experience doing that. And she really kind of taught me how to write and how to write a speech and where the applause line should go. So it was also, I think, uh, we sort of melded over the years. But now it's like the other weekend when we both happened to read the same book that had Kitchen Confidential. We both were randomly reading like a week ago when it came out years ago. The coincidences are without many. talking about it. Yeah, ahead without of time. talking about it. Yeah, and then we both latched. But we also like the same, <laughs> the same Anthony Bourdain moments. Yeah, anyway, it's fun. My mom says that means your antennas are pointed in the same direction. Oh, that's a yeah. moment like that. That's definitely yeah. happening. That's yeah, funny. I love that. Um, can you tell me a little bit what it looks like when you guys sit down to write, whether it's a speech or you're working on the book? Like, what is that? What does your collaborative relationship look like, just like on a logistic level? Namely, I want to know, are you eating anything while you're working? Eating. Okay, actually, it's really funny, Julia, that you asked that. Not so much about the writing process and collaboration, but, you know, we have traveled together a lot. In fact, we just did a book tour. We're about to go back on book tour. Uh, spent, I mean, every waking moment together. And without, a, I can't think of a single place we went to eat where we did not order the exact same thing, which is really Bizarre. <laughs> I mean, we're 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 both vegetarians. We so we have some, but still, the fact that we would both pick the same thing off the menu, whether you're in Wyoming or you're in Texas, is pretty hilarious. So we do talk about food a lot. I would say the one thing I just feel like we have to get this out there. I, you know, you and I have have met before and talked about one of my great loves, which is pie baking. I knew this was going to come up, and I just I was going to ask. Well, it's just yeah. funny because I, I mean, I take a lot of pride in my pies, but but my favorite pie is cherry pie. We may have talked about that. And one of the things about Lauren, and she has very few, she has really very few failings, but the most profound one is that she does not eat fruit that is cooked. And so she will not eat cherry pie, apple pie. I'm not going to start going down the list, but you can see what a weakness this is. So anyway, that's really... That's been a big disappointment. I saw you tweeted recently about not liking pie, and I was—I thought someone hacked your Twitter account. No, I don't. I couldn't like imagine. It. I think good to have differences, but I feel We're like it's important. Across the aisle, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's important. I, just like everything else, just like she wore me down, I'm going to wear her down on this at some point. She's going to, you know, later in life, she's going to come to love cherry pie. I just know it. But I made a cherry pie that one time for your birthday, and, and it turned out I can I you can make it. one. Okay. I just don't like it You're that not. much. So I mean, not more for you, but I suppose I just, I don't know. It's just, it's just hard for me to like wrap my head around someone who doesn't like cooked fruit. I'm glad that we got that out there. Yeah, yeah I'm glad. I feel much. I knew it was going to come up at some point. So let's just, yeah, yeah, put that on the table. Will you eat like a like a chocolate cream pie, a pecan sure. pie? Oh yeah, just not cooked absolutely. Fruit. Just not, not cooked. Okay. Fruit. You make many other pies that are okay. great. I'm totally into them. Yeah. I just can't get behind the warm fruit thing. It's not for me. I think there's, yeah, there's more for you. Lauren, do you cook at home? You live I in do. New York City. Yeah. yeah, well, I live in Brooklyn. Yeah. I'm not a huge baker, but I do I do the cooking in, at our family co-working space because my wife and I both work from home. Yeah, so I, yeah I know how that goes. We yeah. have a tiny, tiny kitchen, so there's only room for one person, which is ideal, I think, from both of our perspectives because she doesn't like to cook and I don't like to have other people in the kitchen. But it's nice, you know, at the end of a, I think especially when we were working on the book or when I'm working on a speech and I get stuck, I either have to go for a run or I have to go make dinner because it's so nice to have something where 
you know you're completely in control of that world and mm-hmm. you have to step away from your phone or your computer and pay attention to what you're doing and it just is a nice reprieve. Yeah, I, I very much understand that. I think also, especially in the work that you guys do and the work you're paying attention to, to have something where you can come home and make something from beginning to end and have that feeling of satisfaction. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, see it's it huge. through. Yeah. I agree. No, I've been, um, I've kind of gone back to pasta making, which I kind of, kind of fallen off, just gotten lazy and you know, use the boxes, uh, boxed pasta. But uh, it is I'm, kind I'm of fun to shame. That was kind of fun to go back to because I'm like, it really requires you to go back and experiment. Go like, I go, what was it that made that? You know, why did this work better? You know, why did that come out this way? And it is it's like this kind of, as my mother would say, small manageable problems that <laughs> that have a beginning and end, yeah. as opposed to uh, trying to figure out what to do for women in this country, yeah. which just seems to be, you know, like kind of never ending and at this moment, yeah, fairly, fairly overwhelming. So speaking of, you mm-hmm. were on a radio program that I and many other people in food love, The Splendid Table. Um, oh, yes. Francis Lamb asked yes. you kind of about this topic. He asked you if it was trivial to talk about pie at a time like this. And your answer really stuck with me. You said, we're all human beings. We have to live through this period. And I think it's really important that we retain our humanity. And I was wondering, I feel like that's kind of what we're talking about, but if you could talk about that a bit more about how cooking and baking preserve our humanity, what does that mean to you? Um, well, it's a little bit like what we I think we were talking about before, is that, um, you know, I think it's important that we um, demystify what it means to be an activist, uh, because I think at this point there's so many millions of people who are trying to figure out what could they do to make a difference in the world, and they want to be able to relate to people who spend a lot of their lives trying to work on issues. And so I like, I think it's important to be able to say, actually, we all do the same things together. We raise kids, we have families, we love, we, um, we cook. And the more that we can sort of show that human side of ourselves is really important. I think this issue of humanity is maybe the most important, profound issue of our time as we're living in a, a during a period in which certain people are being described by our president, by others as less than. And so anything that we can do to really show that, I, I think we, you know, not to get too heavy, but I feel like we saw that most profoundly during the family separation crisis, not that it's over, but that whole concept of being a parent, of caring for children, and what that relationship is like, uh, I think that's why it struck so many people um, is that anyone who has a child could relate to that. Um, And I think it's just critical that the more that those of us who have the luxury of being on, um, sort of being in this day in, day out uh, work on around social justice, show that uh, we're like everybody else and that everybody has a part to play. Uh, This is not, um, this is not, these times, these are not normal times and there's no one coming to save us but ourselves. It's also such a, la- I mean, not a last resort, but when all else fails, you have sort of meals and cooking. And I remember after the Pulse shooting a couple of years ago, I, had, I was working on the Clinton campaign with Cecile's daughter, Lily. And I think that next day after the shooting, we all just felt sort of like, what do we do? Where do we go from here? And Lily called my wife and me and 
a bunch of us went over to Cecile and Kirk and Lily's and y'all had cooked some elaborate meal. And I think we watched the Tonys and just ate homemade strawberry shortcake or some amazing thing. And it felt like, I don't know what else in the world to do in this moment, but it feels so warm and welcoming and and at least there's some measure of hope when you just sit down with people and have a meal together. I, I could not agree more. And I think it's food gives us this way to connect with people. It gives us something to offer. You know, yep. you in that moment, Cecile, could invite Lauren over. Um, it's this way for us to be together in person and kind of express just what you said, love and care and, and comfort. I remember I was living in Washington, D.C., uh, and my kids were much younger during 9-11. And when the whole, I mean, the whole city seemed to just sort of stop, as I know it did here in New York. And I remember we spent that week um, teaching neighborhood kids how to make pie because it felt like the one thing that we could do together. And um, uh, it was it was really a very healing thing, which is like, how do you bring bring these kids together who are wondering what has now happened in our world and say, okay, well, this is something we can do, yeah. a really small thing. And we can, and it's tangible. Yeah, yeah, we can like literally touch it. And, and, and yeah. now all my kids can make pie, so yeah. it works. <laughs> Win-win. I'm wondering because that's something you wrote a lot about about mm-hmm. sort of equipping your kids with the ability. I mean, to do so, so much. Your kids sound so impressive and wonderful, <laughs> but also that they're out in the world and they know how to cook. Yes, and they all. Yeah. yeah. No, it's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, the only time I hear from my son Daniel is when he can't remember how to make salsa verde, or I remember this one time that um, Daniel was away in college, and I always kind of worried about him getting through school because let's he just was not, like, being a student was not what he was probably put on earth to do. But uh, I knew it was finals time, and he texted me, Mom, um, can, I, can I call you? And I was like, oh, God, what is this? And I, so I, I said, sure. And so he calls me, he says, Hey, when you're making puttanesca sauce, do you chop up the tomatoes or do you just crush them in your hands? It's like, okay, Dan. All right, cool. This is this is good. This we can handle. We're gonna be okay. But those are yeah, those are the most panicked calls I get from my kids, or you know, yeah. um, so anyway. But yes, they're they're all they're all cooks. They're at and including Daniel, he's actually he's a he's a chemist now, so he actually understands why things work or don't work in the kitchen that none of the rest of us understand. It was really, it's been really fun. That's amazing. And what does it feel like to you, you know, you talked about sort of family separation and how right. how it struck so many, so everyone, because I think whether you have a child or you are someone's child, um, and I was thinking about that relationship you have with your children and about food, and I'm wondering, what does it feel like when one of your kids now cooks something for you, they share it with you, and it's something you've taught them. What does that feel like when that shows well, up on I, the table? Well, I, I, I live, I'm living for the day when I'm just sitting at the table and they're preparing the entire meal. Because <laughs> one of the things about having kids is when they all come home, it's sort of like everyone reverts to their roles of like, what do you mean? Um, but it's funny. Uh, it does feel good. And, I mean, Lily in particular, she's uh, very type A like me. And so she will send me a photograph of some pie that is just like so completely over the top that I don't know how she is made with the most exotic 
um, exotic crust and whatever. So that's that's actually really fun. Is that now she's even she's definitely one upping me. Um, but probably my favorite thing is that Daniel. We we come from Texas, you know, and my my twins were born in Texas, and he has now um, instituted uh, Chalupa Thursday, which is where he's basically teaching. I don't know, introducing chalupas, which is a particular Tex-Mex um, form of a flat taco, basically, to, um, God knows, hundreds of people in Washington, D.C. So it's like really, that's been really fun. And, and if you can raise your kids to uh, fry a, a tortilla for chalupas, that's, that's a huge accomplishment, and it's a lifelong skill. So he's sort of carrying your family baton through DC absolutely. in the form of no, absolutely. <laughs> Chalupa. Every once in a while I make it there for Chalupa Thursdays, but yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Those were the most heated debates too in the book. It was when we sent it around to your whole family to read. It was, you said here that our most frequent family text thread is for the cherry pie crust, but it's actually the salsa verde recipe. <laughs> or you said here that we were eating uh, hamburgers, or we were eating steak, but it was actually hamburgers that day. Well, food brings out these particulars and, you know, everyone's yeah. sort of opinions, but also memories, you know, it's where we hold our memories. So Don't you? It's yeah. like, it's incredible. There are meals as a family I can remember that more than anything else mm-hmm. about about the trip. Yeah, no, it's powerful. And it speaks to exactly what you said, too, because that's what, you know, everyone in the world has food in common, so we right. can all access yep. our memories and it connects us all in this very simple but, like, incredibly powerful way. And I was also thinking about, you know, I feel like we're talking so much about food's ability to kind of comfort, uh, mm-hmm. to bring up memories, um, to do all of the stuff that feels really positive and I would say kind of really calming. But also food is an incredibly wonderful tool for kind of galvanizing, organizing. That's something you spoke a lot about in the book, too, about using food to bring people together, making sure there's always food at meetings, all that kind of stuff. And I'm wondering about food as kind of a tool for... Um, to be effective in getting people together. And there's also so many people who have taught us about this. Um, And I was wondering if there's anyone off the Mm -hmm. top of your head. I know you've mentioned Leah Chase before, who's a living icon, national treasure. Yeah. Right. And yeah, anyone who hasn't been to Dookie Chase's, just, and if you could ever get Mrs. Chase to tell you their stories of feeding the Freedom Riders and um, well, it's funny because New Orleans is a place where that's actually where I met my husband. We were both union organizers and uh, organizing mainly women who worked in the hotel industry and who worked in the projects and uh, I mean, lived in the projects. And for that, for those women, um, church was was a big, you know, that was kind of the one place away from work that people came together and meals and food and preparing meals for others was huge. And we spent um, so many weeks uh, trying to raise money for the organizing efforts by holding, uh, you know, a fish fry where every and everybody took place. It wasn't. It wasn't. There was anyone said, "I don't actually know how to do that." This was clearly how women connected together and made, you know, enormous bowls of potato salad and did all the kinds of things. And it was a way of connecting with people off the job. Um, and it was a way of raising much needed funds for the community uh, and and feeding everybody. And it was some of my best memories um, were like producing, you know, 300 fried fish suppers <laughs> uh, a, out of a Long Sherman Hall uh, in New Orleans. Um, and it taught me so much and taught me so much about people who had very, very little, but who understood that by coming together and sharing that, 
even if it was, and particularly if it was over a meal, uh, was one of the most important ways you could show community. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a big deep frying task. That's it a was lot. incredible. <laughs> the women I worked with in New Orleans were, and again, these are women who work in two jobs, many raising kids on their own, but they come, I mean, it's sort of like, a, a, to me, it's like a lesson for our times. Yeah. They recognize that there was no way anyone was individually going to get, get ahead or make it. Um, they had to, they had to do things together in community. And that's what it's, I think that's, what's exciting about what we're seeing now with women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Cause I think also, especially your work in organizing folks who work in places like hotels and stuff, you know, it's like that invisible labor force. And Completely. that's true to the food industry across the board, people who work in restaurants and uh, who grow food, who clean up after it, you know, all these things and kind of bringing that group together mm -hmm. and making them feel seen and heard and yeah. making their rights listened to is, is huge. Well, yeah. and it's exciting right now. You know, I'm doing a lot of work um, with some of my friends who work for the Domestic Workers Alliance and their work, which is essentially to try to empower and, and lift up the stories and the experiences of women who take care of Mainly, not not all women, but mainly women who take care of the elderly, who take care of kids, and they are they are the unseen workforce that is literally propping up this whole world. Many of them are cooking for people, preparing homemade meals that otherwise folks wouldn't get. And it's a, these are these women are the backbone of our communities, and so it's exciting to actually have the chance to maybe maybe um, shine a light more on the important role that they play for all of us. Yeah, and what would you say um, is something for anyone maybe listening? What can we do to support that community? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I would, I would definitely look up the domestic workers. They're, you know, they're constantly um, doing activities. They are sharing stories about. And I think, look, there's very few people in this country whose lives have not been touched by a domestic worker one way or the other, either when they were an infant or now when they're taking care of their elderly parents. So the National Domestic Workers Alliance, you can go online and, and just learn more about them. Um, and that's one of the things that we're working together on now is how do you connect the women, um, women who work as domestic uh, workers with women in other walks of life? Because too often they spend their days in private homes, um, behind the scenes. And so the opportunity now to bring all of these women together in this country to say, we actually just need to, if, if all the women in America actually uh, could find ways to work more closely together and support each other, we completely change uh, what's happening. And so that's what we're about doing. But yeah, look them up. They're, they're amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Lauren, would you add anything to that of things we can do. I mean, you guys provide such a, just the two of you together provide such a beautiful example of what happens when women work together and support each other. And yeah. Yeah, I think one thing that has really been on my mind a lot recently, and I know on Cecile's too, because part of the reason that we work well together is because she's a natural storyteller and someone who thinks about stories and, and the power of these stories. We were just talking the other day about some of the horrific examples of you know, families ripped apart or women taken into government custody who were pregnant, who miscarried. And it's so easy in our news cycle right now for those things to sort of slip off the front page and out of sight, out of mind. And I think one of the things we can do right now is to keep telling those stories and refuse to let the human stories of people who are being most directly impacted by these policies, let's keep lifting those up. Let's keep centering those in our work and not let this become about 
who testified before which House committee and who said what on Twitter, it all comes back to the fact that we can't look away from these stories and from people's lives right in this moment. I think it's exciting, too, and I think we can say this because as a sort of post, post-election, that women in America, um, I, I think, have so much in common. There's just basic things that women want. No, They don't really even want more than they're shared. They just want equal opportunity. And to see women now supporting other women, whether they're running for office, um, uh, whether they're organizing around domestic workers or migrant issues or is really, really empowering. And um, one, of the, one of the most joyful things that, that I got to do, and Lauren did as well this last cycle um, in this year, was to go around the country and help women who are running for office and just see women who never imagined themselves going to Congress or serving in their state legislature, just looking up and realizing, um, if not now, when. And that, to me, is it, it's inspiring and that women aren't seeing these women as somehow superheroes or uh, out of the norm they're actually becoming they're everywhere and that women are feeling the joy uh, of having other women succeed and that to me is sort of if there's a positive sign of this moment it is how women are quite quite genuinely um, excited about the success of other women. Um, and it's not just young women, and it's not all, it's all women. And that, that's, that's really cool. And not just running for office either, yeah. but the, you know, women who are thinking, my aunt Cindy in rural Wisconsin uh, just retired from her job and she had run a call center at work. And she sort of woke up one day and thought, well, if I can run a call center at work, I think I could probably run a phone bank for the local Democratic Party. So she started going to the Brown County Democrats office, and then she got all the other sisters to go with her, and then they're bringing food, and they're dragging their neighbors along. And all of these women, I think, are looking around and saying, well, I don't know if I could knock a door, but I might as well try. Things can't get any worse than they are right now. Yeah. Way to go, Aunt Cindy. I know. That's awesome. Right on. Yeah. She's think, a natural. Yeah. And making those connections between what you're already doing and how you can do this yeah. for your community is huge. And it's something I think about with food all the time, but it's applicable to, to everything. You know, if you can run a phone bank, you can run a phone bank. That's <laughs> like, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I wanted to just talk about one more kind of place of synergy that I mm-hmm. see a lot because I think that um, one way I kind of wrap my head around the fight for women's health and reproductive rights is thinking about it through the lens of food. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the fight for food justice is the same thing. It's yes. the fight for ownership and agency over our bodies mm-hmm. and what we put into them or choose not to or, you know, whatever it might be. And and I'm wondering if this is something you've thought about before, if that synergy is something that um, you've, you've leveraged in any way. Is there, you know, what's the intersection between kind of the food justice community and the women's health community? Well, so um, I think the first point is really one that, I mean, I talked a lot about when we were at Planned Parenthood. It's like women didn't come to Planned Parenthood because they were trying to make some like bold political statement. They were coming because they needed to take care of themselves or their kids or their family. And so all of the folks that I think try to make these into political issues, they're just basic issues of survival and humanity. Uh, And we also know that women who again, particularly the, the women um, 
who are our patients, they, their, their world didn't begin and end at the reproduction. It was, it was being able to raise their kids in safe communities where they could send their, their child to the corner store and not worry about gun, gun violence or that they could drink the water and um, whether you're in Flint, Michigan or anywhere else and know that it would be safe. And food insecurity, as we know, is uh, an enormous problem for millions of Americans. And particularly, depending on the community that you live in, your ability uh, to actually get, um, not only afford food, but to actually get fresh food is, it's incredible. The, you know, as we know, food deserts around the country. There was a really, I'll, I, will, I will refer you to one of the most amazing uh, floor speeches I ever heard in Congress um, by a, a congresswoman from the state of Wisconsin who talked about, uh, and this was actually in defense of Planned Parenthood, because that was the, the operative issue. It was Congresswoman Moore, but it was she talked about, she said, I want to tell you what not having Planned Parenthood means. It's, it's about not being able to feed your children every day. It's about having to feed your kids ramen noodles because it's the only thing that will, will fill their bellies and not being able to get fresh fruit and fresh vegetables. It was, it was so eloquently um, said, and of course in Congress usually no one's paying attention to anything, but boy, when, when, when she spoke, it was, you know, you couldn't hear, a, you could have heard a pin drop. All of these issues are connected. And that's one of the things, that, again, that I, I guess you think Lauren and I are really interested in and working on now is um, how do we actually begin to build this, these communities around women that understand that yes, you need uh, access to healthcare and you need reproductive healthcare, but you need a lot, a lot more. And I think that the more that we understand these issues as all intersecting, I think that that that's happening more and more, probably because of these days and time. But you're right, the ability um, to to feed your family or feed yourself. Um, and and get healthy food is something that is a profound luxury in this country, and it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, and just even to define what healthy means to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, there was just. I mean, you, you may have read it. There was a, you know the stories. I think it was in the New York Times Magazine recently, though, about the difference that it means to actually. One one of the issues that that I'm really interested in as well, of course, is a living wage in this country, and the difference it means for people who don't have a living wage what their food choices are. There was a really incredible article about someone who, a young woman who had actually gotten a raise that she wasn't supposed to get, they didn't know it, and suddenly she started being able to eat at someplace other than McDonald's Mm -hmm. and what it meant for her. And then when she lost the raise again, that she was back down to, you know, eating the two for $5 meals because that was the only thing that was available to her. So it's completely connected, you know. um, Income insecurity is completely connected to um, how and what you can eat. Yeah. It's that Audrey Lord quote, women don't have the luxury of living single-issue lives. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's all the ecosystem. And yes. It is all connected, and I think the more that we can kind of meet at those intersections and as women support each other, just, right. you know, right. the no. better. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. And especially now in a country where the, you know, the, the divide... Um, not only in terms of where you live, but certainly your income is just getting greater and greater. And um, I think it's, that's why I also appreciate just the chance to get out around the country mm-hmm. because it doesn't all look the same. Yeah, yeah. And where um, most recently, 
maybe in your travels or just here in New York, where did you feel the most hopeful the most recently? Where gave the you... The most hopeful? Yeah. Honestly, I, um, maybe because I'm an organizer and that's just how you have to be, I feel hopeful everywhere I go. Every single town I have gone to, uh, whether it was on book tour or whether to go maybe make a speech, there's a new women's group that's popped up. And most of them are women who've never done anything before, and they are, they've simply started gathering together, and they may be there writing postcards uh, to Congress about something they're concerned about, or they are organizing to get more women to vote, or they've started a book club. Uh, as my daughter Hannah said, she said, Mom, you know, she lives out in Colorado, and she said, Mom, I don't know, there's all these women's groups that have started up. I haven't seen any new men's groups. And I just think, like, it's just, it's, uh, I think, the, the women's marches really did show women that they weren't alone, and women just took that not as the end, but as the beginning. And so I'm, uh, I, I'm really excited about the opportunity that women have now uh, to, again, not just resist, but actually talk about the kind of world that they want to live in and then go build it. Yeah. Lauren, what, where is giving you hope? Where, what gives you hope? Oh, man. there I kind of feel the same way. If you look for it, there's a lot of bad, distressing things in the world, but there are also in women's resilience and their response to those things, especially right now. It's hard not to be hopeful when you see what people are doing in spite of these, you know, kind of seemingly insurmountable obstacles. But I would have to say, talk to uh, my home state of Wisconsin, where they recently finally elected a new governor who wasted no time at all doing what he could to restore funding for Planned Parenthood and actually talking to teachers and families about public schools. And the other, I mean, there have been so many moments, but when we went to the Ann Richards School in Texas, that was, it was really hard not to be hopeful, you know, surrounded by thousands of, you know, middle school and high school girls talking about you know, all the things they want to do with their lives, and they're showing us the student paper that they write and edit, and they're, you know, using 3D printers and building a habitat for the uh, all the local zoo animals. That was amazing. That, yeah. I just walked out of there feeling like... Young girls. It's, we're just all over it. It's yeah. really... I will say one thing that occurred to me, because I think of the images of the last year or two that have just kind of stuck in my mind. Um, and I think one that, because it's exciting to see not just what's happening in the U.S., but what's happening around the world. And to see the women in Ireland go home to vote. I mean, I think there isn't, you know, it's just so profound. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need more of that where... And that's what women are sort of hungry for, is how to see what other women are doing and feel excited about that, whether it's, you know, the women of Ireland, whether it's Stacey Abrams becoming the first African-American woman to be nominated governor and, you know, almost winning her her election, um, or to see the new Congress sworn in, um, looking, beginning to look a little bit more like America. Mm-hmm. There's just there's hopeful signs yeah. everywhere. Yeah, you have to tell the story of the woman in New York um, when you spoke at the event, and someone asked what they could do, and you said go. Oh, work. this is actually kind of okay. This maybe you can you can cut this out. Oh it's no, like way too long. But please. No, it's funny because we were on on book tour, and um, 
I, I was speaking at NYU, and uh, they always do audience questions, and the question came up from someone, I, you know, I feel like I need to be doing more, what should I do? And I said, well, I don't know who asked the question, but if, if I were you, and this was the summertime, uh, I would quit your job and go work for Stacey Abrams. She's the most exciting person running for office in Georgia, uh, you know, again, running to be governor. And uh, then we kind of went on the rest of the evening. Well, it wasn't like 10 days later, I was on an airplane and I get, someone has uh, messaged me on Instagram and it's a young woman who says, I was in the audience the other night at NYU and I heard what you said, so I quit my job. I'm moving to Atlanta to be, <laughs> to be Stacey Abrams' deputy digital director. And it just was one of the, and you know, so her trajectory, this young woman's tra trajectory has now changed. And I think that's what we see is every time a woman takes a risk or goes and um, sort of breaks the mold or doesn't, it, it has the ripple effect all across the country. Yeah. And uh, anyway. You make it known it can be done. You yeah. Know, that it's an option. And I think every, all those images you, you brought up that just give me chills to remember and stuff, but to also remember that it, none of it happened by accident. No. So many people work to make this happen and complacency won't. Right. And none of it happened. Yeah. And none of it happened because these women were just individual superheroes. Mm -hmm. It happened because they were hundreds or thousands, or in some cases, millions of women lifting them up. Mm -hmm. And that's, that to me is what the, the, that's the memo for the time is, you know, there isn't one thing that's going to change everything. It's going to be everybody doing something more. Mm -hmm. And uh, our, our motto now is start before you're ready. Don't wait till you know exactly what it is to be done. Just do the next thing. Yeah. And if you do, and if everyone does, we can absolutely change the future and build the future. Start before you're ready. Yeah, that's yeah. my favorite. Thanks for the, and that's probably thanks for the episode too. title. <laughs> <laughs> I have one very, very random, maybe silly question. No, but what do they serve for lunch at the Ann Richards School? What does school lunch look like there? Well, oh, we, didn't, we didn't get to stay for lunch, um, but I'm sure it's something fabulous. I mean, it is a public school in Austin, Texas, so... I, it's not nothing. I'm sure. I don't think it's any gourmet feast, um, but it is. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, but it's amazing. Okay, we'll it's, have to have a follow up. I know. I'll, I'll have to. I can. My niece is actually going to school there. I'll text her and ask her what they're. What they're. What they had today. What they, exactly. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's I so think great. that wound up being one of the days when we left and had a sad airport lunch. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you yeah. had it together. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, you, you guys are just incredible women. I'm honored to know you. I appreciate you taking the time, and it means a lot. And I like getting to reflect on how food connects to all this stuff because it is what we all have in common. So yes, it gives us absolutely. a chance to get in there. And yeah. thank you for just constantly putting out new books and giving us new inspiration. And um, I've made your coleslaw many, many times. It's really... I love a woman who knows a good coleslaw. That's just, it's, some of these things are kind of dying arts. And so I just love that you've, you've breathed a new life yeah. into the whole cole, coleslaw regimen. Well, I really appreciate that. Yeah. That's <laughs> one of my you, favorite things. You liberated us from, well, me in our household from um, peeling and chopping garlic. So that was a just big step. Just buy the peeled garlic. Yeah. Start that before you're ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have one just final question that I love yeah, to ask sure. everyone. Fun question. You can choose who answers first. But I just would love to know what was your favorite thing to eat when you were growing up? The first thing that comes to mind. No pressure. 
Mine, I would have to say I became a vegetarian when I was nine. Um, my parents thought it was a crazy phase that I would outgrow, but I'm 31 now and still a vegetarian. And one of the first things that my mom figured out that she could cook for us that would still count as a meal was spanakopita. So that's like my family comfort food. That's what I always have on Thanksgiving instead of turkey. Is that really? That's your go-to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. That was like, that's our family pie. That was the thing she was like. That is a pie. You're not leaving the this household until you know how to do this for yourself. And it's great because then you make it and bring it to someone's house and it seems really impressive. No, it but it's impressive. very easy. Do you, think, do you have it like with mashed potatoes and stuff? Do you have the sides? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So you just, instead it's of like, turkey. Everyone else has turkey. Yeah. And it's gotten to the point now where even if I wanted to have something different, we can't change yeah, it now. It's tradition. It's tradition. Yeah. I love that. Amazing. So mine's much worse. I, I mean, growing <laughs> up, so I grew up in Texas, right, where there's not a meal without meat. I became a vegetarian at 12, so... Uh, a little later, later blooming than okay. um, than Lauren. But, so, but growing up in Texas, my absolute favorite, and I say this like when I, on my deathbed, when they say, "What's the last meal you want?" It was a chili cheese dog. Love those! Oh my god! I did what not I would, see that coming. What I would not give. I mean, I don't want to eat one now, but that was a good. That was a good thing in Texas growing up. <laughs> we have um, there's a brat fest in Wisconsin mm. in Madison every year. <laughs> And I don't remember, I don't think I ever went before I was a vegetarian, but it's not, like, I can get behind that whole thing. Yeah. I like a veggie dog. It's a good vehicle for other Well, it's just the vehicle for things. the cheese and the yeah. chicken. No, 100%. But. Onions? Oh, yeah. The yeah. I'm a All huge, the toppings. I don't know. Whenever, when I was pregnant with my, my kids, I just could not get enough hot sauce. And I feel like it just has, it just has gotten worse and worse. And they are now all, I mean, that's our, the only really family feud is over you know, Cholula versus Tabasco or, you know, whatever. But, um, yeah, no, I'm a big, I'm big into more spice is, yeah, the way to go. Can I ask your hot sauce preference? I, listen, this, I'm, I'm kind of a traditionalist. I'm a big Tabasco yeah. girl. I really am. I think it's, it's not broken. That's what I say. Now, there are people who disagree, but that, that's my go-to. There's room for all of us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Plus, that's I, I didn't know if that was your actual preference or if, if it was just that at every random hotel that I always restaurant. Have it well, and they ha- yeah, you can't. They no, usually no. have that even if the rest of the food that we're eating at whatever in between events is really sad. You can probably count on a bottle of Tabasco somewhere. It's just it it never disappoints. Well, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. And just a quick word about Great Jones, who helped make this episode possible. Great tools are just like great ingredients. They make you want to get in the kitchen and enjoy your time there. Since Great Jones sent along one of their enameled cast iron large pots, which they call the Duchess, I haven't taken it off my stove. First of all, it looks great. And second, it's just so versatile. I cover dry beans with water, bring the whole thing to a boil, cover the pot, and then tuck the whole duchess in my oven at like 275 for a few hours, and the beans come out perfectly. I've made popcorn in it, and it cooks so evenly. I've even used the duchess to cook down three whole bunches of greens that I've chopped and cooked down with a bunch of garlic and oil. Thanks, Great Jones, for making my day-to-day cooking feel a lot more inspired, and thank you for supporting Keep Calm and Cook On. Want to check out their wares? Just head over to greatjonesgoods.com. For $25 off of any purchase on greatjonesgoods.com, use the code POTCAST. That's P-O-T-C-A-S-T. 
And now it's time for listeners' questions. If you have a question for me, just send me a DM on Instagram at Tertian or drop an email to keep calm and cook on podcast at gmail.com. That's one word, no punctuation. And I'm so happy to welcome Grace, my wife, back for season two to ask the questions. Here you go, Grace. All right. Season two, question number one comes from Balsy Fam on Instagram. They would like to know, what's the deal with cooking meat that's been marinated? Some say to discard the marinade. Some say it's okay to cook with what's left on the meat. Is there a hard and fast rule to keep as much flavor as possible from the marinade without making someone ill? Okay, the hard and fast rule is to never use marinade that's touched raw meat when you're serving something. You always want to cook anything that's touched raw meat first before serving. Uh, You can use marinade that's left over from, say, you're marinating like a pork tenderloin or a steak or something. If it's touched that raw meat, you can bring that mixture to a boil, like in a small saucepan, reduce it a little bit, serve it as a sauce with the meat, but always cook it first. Make sure you bring it to a boil to kill any nasty germs or anything like that. Another thing that I'm a really big fan of is cooking your meat really simply without marinating it. Salt and pepper, that's it. And then just grill your whatever it is, pork tenderloin, steak, chicken, you name it. And then make a mixture that's like a marinade and serve it as kind of a sauce on the meat and you can let it sit on there. And I think that's the best way to get that fresh flavor of whatever you're making um, without wasting any of it. So you can do something like grill a whole fish and then make a really vinegary mixture and let it sit in that mixture, make kind of like an escovitch. Um, You could grill a pork tenderloin tenderloin and put like a orange vinaigrette, something like that, spoon it on top. So you're getting all that flavor. You're not wasting anything. Nothing's going down your drain or anything like that. Your next question comes from Betsy J. Wallace. Each year, I want to sign up for a CSA, but I worry about ending up in a bad cycle of wasted produce and overwhelm. Do you have any tips or advice for those of us who want to support our local growers through a CSA, but are nervous about a mystery box of vegetables arriving every week? So a CSA, for anyone who might not know, it stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And it's basically where you buy a share from a farmer and you're giving them some money up front, which is a great way to support farmers. They know exactly how much they're getting. And in exchange, you get a certain amount of produce or whatever that farmer grows every week, sometimes every other week. It just depends on what their system is. So my first piece of advice is to talk to the farmer and find out if a smaller box is available. If you're overwhelmed by the amount, they might be willing to be a little bit flexible with you if that works for them. Also, while you're talking to them, ask them how they prepare the produce. No one is going to know that produce better than the person who grew it. So find out what makes them excited about cooking it and if there's any tips for something that you might not know how to make. Another idea is to go in on the CSA with a friend or a neighbor. Maybe even see if a local food pantry or soup kitchen might be able to divide the share with you. So that way you can support them. You can take that big share. But if it's too much for just you, you have someone to share it with. And in terms of of cooking stuff that you might be unfamiliar familiar with. I think never underestimate the power of olive oil, salt, and a hot oven. Basically, any vegetable is delicious when you just cut it into bite-sized pieces, coat it with some olive oil and salt, and roast it at like 425. That does wonders to everything from broccoli to radishes. It's delicious. And then also, if you have really way too much, you can get into the really fun world of canning and jarring and also freezing. You don't have to necessarily can and jar everything. You can use your freezer to preserve things. So you can make big batches of, let's say, mashed squash or uh, roasted sweet potatoes or roasted carrots, and then you can freeze those and use them all year round. 
Your next question comes from Misha Gross. I bought buttermilk this weekend to make cornbread, but I only used half a cup and now I have so much left over. Do you have any suggestions for leftover buttermilk? I love buttermilk and I noticed this is a really common concern for home cooks. Many recipes call for just a little bit and then you're left with that whole big carton. And that's why I use buttermilk in so many of my recipes because I always want to use up that carton. So in my first book, Small Victories, there's buttermilk in the Everything Biscuits, the buttermilk and pimentone fried chicken. Uh, it's also in one of my favorite desserts ever, the berry and buttermilk cobbler, which is the easiest thing to make. A child can make it. And then in Now and Again, I use buttermilk in the cornbread and in the buttermilk ranch dressing, which you can easily make in large quantities. That's a great way to use up leftover buttermilk. So those are all, you know, just really fun ideas to use, you know, at least a cup or so in each recipe. Uh, you can get to the bottom of the carton. Of course, pancakes, great. The sour cream pancakes and small victories, you can substitute the sour cream for buttermilk. They're wonderful. Um, and really the the best thing to do if you have a ton of leftover buttermilk, you don't want to, you know, bake something or measure it in any way. Pour it into a big Ziploc bag, put a whole chicken in it, let it marinate. This is a method that Samin Nosrat has really popularized, and it's wonderful because the buttermilk adds flavor to the chicken, it sort of brines it, it also tenderizes it, all that acid in the buttermilk really helps, and you get the most beautiful roasted chicken ever. So that is like my go-to when I just have a ton that I just want to get rid of and I don't want to think about. But all those recipes that I mentioned are really great ways to use it. Thanks so much for asking the questions, Grace, and thank you all for asking the questions. And if you have one for me, just send a DM on Instagram to Tertian, that's my handle, or drop an email to keepcalmandcookonpodcast at gmail.com. That's one word, no punctuation. Thanks so much. And quickly before I head out, a shout out to the National Domestic Workers Alliance, the organization that Cecile mentioned. They're doing incredible work to raise the labor standards for all domestic workers, including housekeepers, nannies, home care, and elder care workers, groups whose work is often invisible and not afforded the same protections as other workers. To learn more about them and to support their work, head over to domesticworkers.org. That's domesticworkers.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Keep Calm and Cook On. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And if you have a few extra seconds, rate and review the show. It really makes a difference to help others find it. And let someone know about the show. Post about it on social media. Download an episode on your mom's phone. Text a friend. Each new listener is a new member of the community. For more about me and my work and my cookbooks, head over to juliatertian.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Tertian. And thanks again to Great Jones for making this episode possible. Great Jones makes beautiful, thoughtfully designed cookware. To find out more about Great Jones, head over to greatjonesgoods.com. For $25 off of any purchase on greatjonesgoods.com, use the code POTCAST. That's P-O-T-C-A-S-T. I'm Julia Tertian, and I'll catch you next time. Until then, take care.